Um, when they asked me, Hal, I called Hal, a, I don't know, a couple months ago, and he asked me to come and speak, and he said he'd like me to tell my story, but he said I only had a half hour, and being as grandiose as I've always been, I said, I won't even get a chance to tell him how good I am at golf in a half hour. Good morning. I'm Kevin B., and I'm an alcoholic. Um, my story starts, uh, like all of ours, I guess, in our family of origin, and I grew up as the only son of a drill sergeant, and I remember spending most of my formative years playing sports and going to Catholic schools and feeling not quite good enough most of the time. I particularly remember a basketball game I played when I was a senior. We were playing a crosstown rival in South Bend, the other Catholic school, South Bend St. Joe. And I had scored, I don't know, 40-some points, and we won in the last couple of minutes. And I was coming off the floor and high-fiving everybody, and my father comes up and he says, you know, you missed two free throws in the fourth quarter. That's unacceptable. And I remember feeling that way most of the time. Um, I went on and played basketball at the University of Detroit, but I always had that sense that I wasn't quite good enough. That little voice that we all have inside of us was always telling me that uh, everybody else um, got the organic chemistry a little better than I did. They were a little bit better on the uh, on the basketball court, on the golf course, in their relationships. They were a little more serious in church than I was. So I had that little voice, but it wasn't something I knew how to talk about. So I finished uh, finished undergrad in uh, 1970, got real, uh, 1974, got real sick that year. I have Crohn's colitis. I went to the Cleveland Clinic for 97 days in the summer of 74 and had uh, some 20 feet resected and came out of that summer very confused, full of Percodan and very confused. I remember leaving the Cleveland Clinic with a bottle of 200 Percodan and uh, was told to take a few of those every day so I'd feel better and and nobody really said too much more than that. I went back to graduate school, and I kept taking the Percodan. Went to dental school, and I kept taking the Percodan. And what I found out as I went to school was that if I took those, I could pretty much get through the day, and I felt reasonably normal, and people would leave me alone. I still had that little voice inside of me that told me I wasn't good enough. And that voice was getting louder. But I really didn't have a sense that it had anything to do with the Percodan because that's really what was getting me through the day. Now, I didn't drink. Alcohol was not a problem. But I didn't even know or didn't realize or I, it didn't kick in that the Percodan was a problem either. After all, I was sick. Right? So when I went to dental school, I kind of crossed over when I finished and um, started treating myself. You know, those trips to the gastroenterologist, the specialist, seemed to be out of the way. And after all, the state should realize that uh, I'm special and I should be allowed to go ahead and prescribe for myself. I'm sick. So, you know, uh, the, the same kinds of things would go on with me that went on with everybody. My relationships would start. They would be intense. They would fail. Um, my relationship with my family was nearly non-existent. It was pleasant, but nearly non-existent. I didn't have a spiritual life. Um, just like Mike Brown says in his song, I was financially, emotionally, and spiritually bankrupt, and I didn't know it. I remember the sense of trying to get through the day. 
I was not a drop down, take ten perky in at a time, buzz buzz type of person. I take two every four to six hours, and take two every four to six hours. Unfortunately, the state frowned upon that kind of behavior. I uh, got a practice in Hastings, Michigan, and it didn't take them too long to figure out what I was doing. I would call in an antibiotic to a pharmacy. I'd bring in a written under somebody else's name. And the written was for a Schedule II narcotic, of course. And then I would go ahead and pick up the antibiotic and pick up the Schedule II. And I was off and running. Um, I think right around April the 15th, 1988, a gentleman from the state police stopped into my office and he said, Kev, I want you to tell us the truth. If you just tell us the whole truth, things are going to go well for you. Well, I, you know, I'd never had an attorney, never been in trouble, didn't understand the process, so I took him out to Big Boy there in Hastings, and we sat down for three hours, and I told him the truth. By the way, for you people that are still in treatment, don't do that. That's not a good idea. Call your attorney. So I told him everything that I could remember, all the pharmacies I'd been to, and and all the stuff that I did. And he said, well, we'll get back to you. And boy, did they. Um, the next day, uh, a gentleman from licensing and regulation came to my office, and he told me that they didn't want me practicing dentistry anymore. And the day after that, I went up to see Tom Haynes at WEMAC because I wanted to go to some meetings so that they could let me practice dentistry again. I'd heard that if I uh, went up and saw Tom, went to a couple meetings, the state would pat me on the back and say it was okay. Well, Tom recognized me for what I was and told me that I had to do some inpatient treatment. And I told him I couldn't possibly do that because I had a practice to take care of and all this other stuff. And after all, I was an important man in Hastings, Michigan. So Tom said, you know, it's either my way or, or no way at all. And he said, you know, you'll come back. You'll be back to see me. And I remember walking out the door saying, what? Who in the heck is this? I ain't coming back to see him. I'll figure this out. I'm smart. Well, after about a year and a half, I was back at WEMAC in Grand Rapids, knocking on the door, begging for somebody to help me. Um, the state still had not done anything with my license. They had summarily suspended it. And in the meantime, um, I'd been put on a um, delayed sentencing agreement with the state of Michigan, which meant that they were going to give me some time to try to figure out how to get better. So I went up to Tom at WEMAC, because I'd heard he had some experience with with people that had the same kind of problem that I had. And I, I asked him if if he'd treat me. And he said, well, have, has anything changed? And I said, well, yeah, pretty much like you said, I've, I lost my house, and I've lost my family, and I, I've lost my practice. Pretty much everything's going like you said it was going to go, and I'm, I'm not doing too well. And he said, I'll take you, but I'm going to take you on one condition that you sign an open-ended agreement, that you'll come and you'll stay unless we kick you out for as long as we think you need to stay. And for somebody with my personality and for somebody who was as grandiose, is as grandiose as I am, that was very difficult to do. But I really didn't have any choice. I had nowhere to go. So I told him, yeah, I'll come and I'll stay. And Tom scared me. Hell, Tom still fears me. But, and I've got 10 years. 
And I never knew why Tom scared me until I was about three months into it. And my uh, counselor there, Clyde, said just those words. He said, you know why Tom scares you? Because Tom gets it about you. I said, what do you mean, Clyde? He says, that little voice that's in your head, it's in Tom's head, too. He knows all about you. He's the only one that knows all about you. And that's why you're scared. And I thought about that for a long time. And he gave me a great gift there. He gave me the gift of being in treatment with a bunch of people who acted really strange, I thought. And he gave me the gift of standing back at night and asking other people if I acted as strange as those guys. And they said, yeah, yeah you did. And I was a big-time rule breaker. And the program was just really getting started at that time. And I know Tom got up an hour early every morning to try to figure out what rules we broke last night so he could change them that day. But I started to learn. I paid attention. I went to meetings every day. I read the big book. I talked to my sponsor. And things started to get better. Right, let's get back to that delayed sentencing thing. You remember I talked to the state police way back on April 15th, 1988. And some of those things were starting to come to fruition at this time. I had prosecutors delivering little notes at my door saying, I'd like to see you in this courthouse at this date. So Tom would get in the car and we'd go down there and they'd say, well, that's good. You're in treatment. We're going to leave you alone. And uh, one particular day, it was a really bad day, we went to Hastings and walked out of the courthouse. The judge says, you're in treatment. We're going to leave you alone until you get done. Be good. And we walked out the door and there was the sheriff from the county next door. Put the cuffs on me, back in the car, Tom waved to me, and away I went. Somebody had to come and pick me up over in that county. Walked out of that courtroom, and there was a sheriff from the county next door. Put the cuffs on me, went over to that county. And I'm posting bail on all these counties, by the way, or my father is. God love him. And then, uh, anyway, by the time they got done with me there in uh, April of 1990, I had had to postpone in 14 counties from talking to the state police at that big boy. Now, you got to remember that the prosecutor in, in my particular county told me that they were only going to pursue one felony, um, obtaining total substance by fraud, a four-year felony in the state of Michigan. He lied. He did not tell me the truth. So, anyway, I'm back in treatment, and I'm trying to keep it together. I've lost my practice. I've lost my family. Um, and I'm trying to get the program. I'm working really hard at the program. You know, that little voice is getting is getting softer and softer. I'm finally starting to feel like I've got some honesty. I can look in the mirror for longer than a second and stare into those eyes, and it's okay for the first time in my life. And I'm starting to understand my family of origin. I'm starting to understand why my relationships failed. And I'm starting to place the blame right where it belonged on me instead of my circumstances. And then, I don't know, you know, this recovery thing is a, is a slippery thing for me. I'm not really sure what happened to me. I'd been in about six months, long time. I don't know if you've ever been in treatment, but four months, there's a reason why it's four months. <laughs> After four months, it, it gets really hard. But I wasn't following some of the rules. You know, I was. Uh, we weren't supposed to work when we were there. I started doing that, and that rule got easy to break, and... I remember I had a Crohn's episode, and instead of running that through time like I was supposed to, I decided to go see a gastroenterologist myself, and he gave me this stuff. 
And to this day, I really have never been able to figure out if I knew what he was giving me or if I just really didn't care. But I was dropping urine three, four times a week, so I'm not sure what I did. But anyway, I took the stuff he gave me, turned out to be Lortab liquid, dropped the urine for Tom the next day. I wasn't nervous about it, so I don't know how confused I must have been, but Tom called me in the office. He says, Kev, we got a real tough group here right now. You've been here a long time. You still got a lot of issues. You, you need to go. And I said, Tom, yeah, I can't go. If I go, I go. On that delayed sentencing, if you send me out of here, I go. He says, Kev, you got to go. I've done as much for you as I can do at this point. You need a spiritual awakening. Well, at that point, um, the courts gave me a call. Said, uh, you've left treatment. We see that. You need to come in and talk to the judge. On September 19th, 1990, I went in to see Judge Schuster, the Hastings Courthouse. And he said, Kev, you've done a nice job. You know, you went to meetings and everybody thinks you're doing great. Most of your urines have been pretty clean. But he says, uh, I think you need, you need a little bit more. We're going to help you. We're going to send you to the state prison at Southern Michigan for four years. And I said, oh, no, it can't get any worse than this. Boy, was I wrong. It got worse real quick. Anyway, so they put you in a car, and they drive you over there, and they put you in a place called Reception and Guidance. Boy, is that a misnomer. There's no reception. There's no guidance. They strip you down butt naked and spray you with stuff. you got to stand in this room with a bunch of people you don't know, butt naked and sprayed with stuff for hours. Put you in this cell, and they don't tell you anything. I mean, they don't tell you where you're going, what you're doing. And every once in a while, every other day, they come and get you out for some kind of psychological testing. And it's it's just, it's a bad place. If you guys have never been to a prison or visited a prison, you really can't appreciate it until you've been there. But I remember thinking about what Tom said. I remember this statement. I wrote it down. I want to read it to you. It said, you'll not get any better until that inner voice of yours forgives you. You might just be too smart to get better. Well, I remember standing on that bed, because you couldn't sleep on the bed where I was because there were too many rats on the floor. And that's the God honest truth. I remember standing on that bed, begging for that inner voice to forgive me. And I had one of those spiritual experiences right then. The middle of the night, September 22, 1990. And I got it. I understood. And things changed after that. Um, I was still in reception and guidance. I still didn't know what was going on. It was still a bad place. But things smoothed out. I didn't care. Uh, it was going to be all right. To make a long story short, within six months I got out of there. I was placed on a home detention. I went to work at a local hospital as a med tech. Um, my sponsor told me that he thought a car was a dangerous thing for me because when I had money in my pocket and a car, I would go to the north side of Kalamazoo and do cocaine. So I gave him my car keys, and here's this 37-year-old man in St. Joe, Michigan, in the middle of the winter, riding his bike to work in the dark. You know, those 
when you go to downtown, a lot of times you see these people with the bags and the carts and everything, and you feel bad for them. You go, I wonder what happened to them. That was me. That was me riding that bike. That's how I did my grocery shopping, hanging on with one arm, pulling the bags over my shoulder with the other. I did that for two years. Did not did not drive a car for two years. And when I was ready not to have my license back again, I went to the IDAA meeting in Grand Rapids in 92. A guy came up to me and he says, you need to talk to me. He says, I do? He says, yeah, I've heard about you. You need to talk to me. Dr. Jerry Shields is a dentist with the Department of Corrections in Michigan. And he said, have you had enough? And I said, yeah, I've had enough. He says, I can help you. I said, okay. He said, will you do everything I tell you to do? Yeah. You won't bullshit me? I'll try. I have a hard time with the truth, but I'll try. So he worked uh, on a committee with the Health and Well-Being Committee in the Michigan Dental Association. And he took me over to the committee. They're in Lansing. I had to get a ride up there. I'm still not driving. Um, I got in front of the committee, and the committee said, you want your license back? We can help you. And I said, guys, I've been to prison. I've got a felony on my record. I'm never going to practice dentistry again. I'm just going to be a med tech and go to my meetings and try not to hurt anybody. And he said, nah, you know, we haven't had anybody quite like you in a while, but, you know, we might be able to do something for you. And Jerry says, Tom says we'll be able to do something for you. So anyway, they, you got to remember this happened in 88 that my license was taken away. We're talking 92 right now. They tell me to keep going to my meetings, keep doing my urine drops, keep talking to my sponsor, keep doing what I'm doing. I go to their meetings every three months, and I show up in 1994, and they sit down, and they say, you know, Kev, you've been out of dentistry six years, and hell, you only practiced six years before you screwed up. He says, you need to go back to school. I said, okay, I'll take some continuing ed. That's not a problem. They said, no, you need to go back to school. And at that point, they say, you, you know, are you willing to do what we tell you to do? Yeah. You want your license back? Yeah. You're going back to U of M for a year. I said, wait a minute, I live in St. Joe, Michigan. I'm a med tech. I can't go back. Kev, you're going back to U of M for a year. So we worked it out. I drove down the highway on Sunday night and stayed in a professor's house for three nights a week. Did my graduate program in, in advanced operative dentistry Monday through Thursday. Got a ride back to St. Joe and worked as a med tech Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, double shifts. Did that for 16 months. Then all of a sudden the board of dentistry called. Says, Kev, your urines are clean. You're going to meetings. You went back to school. Come see us. So I had a meeting in front of an administrative law judge who was very open-minded. Best judge I ever had, by the way. In fact, he's the only one that never gave me any time that I can remember. What he did say was, you've had an experience where you can help some people if you stay clean. If you stay in the program, if you do what you're supposed to do, the road you've been down could probably help some people. What he did do was give me my license back. On February 3rd, 1995, I walked out of that administrative law judge office in Lansing, Michigan with a license in my hand. I could not believe it. Seven years. We've been out seven years. 
a lot of things happened that that year. Uh, two months later, I got married. Um, let me get this right. Eleven months later, I had my second child. Two years after that, I had my third child. I had a guy call me at the University of Michigan and say, I heard you just got your license back. Come work for me. I said, oh, wait a minute. What the heck are you talking He says, I heard you got your license back. I need you. So I went to talk to him, and he was he's a Christian fellow, very much into the church. And I said, Dr. Keith, I'm not sure you really understand what happened here. You know, I went around writing prescriptions and uh, ruined my practice. And he said, how old are you? I said, well, I don't know, 43. He said, how are you doing financially? He said, I'm not doing very well. He says, I want you. You need to work. So he needed an associate. I needed a job, and that was in Bridgman, Michigan. At this time, I'd moved to South Bend about 45 miles away. And at this time, I could trust myself to drive without going directly to the north side of Kalamazoo for cocaine. So I took the job. I've been there seven years now, almost seven years, and I haven't missed a day of work. I have two beautiful children. I'm in a good relationship. It could be better. We're working on it. I go to my meetings. I still have trouble <coughs> urinating. Um, I can only pee in a cup. That creates a problem sometimes, but I do it and then just dump it out. Um, Hal tells the story. We went to play golf. I went, where were we? Out in New Jersey when we played golf? We're out looking for his golf ball. And, we, and he had the habit of writing Doc on his golf ball. And I went over there and I found it in the weeds and I looked up and I said, oh my God, it's the Department of Corrections. They're looking for me. I still think the Department of Corrections or, or the DEA or whoever are right outside my door because I've had a lot of experience with them. But I've also had a lot of experience now with some really sick dentists who have done what they're supposed to do and gone to meetings and read the big book and called me their sponsor. Me. <laughs> me, their sponsor. That's, that's nearly ridiculous. If you knew me very well, you'd think that was pretty funny. But we've had some pretty sick people in Michigan that have kept their licenses. They don't do what they used to do in Michigan anymore. They give you a chance to get into the recovery process and to maintain the recovery process without taking away your, your income. And these people seem to do well. And it's it's been great to see, like I said, people that are just down and out, people that were down as far as I was, I think, that go into treatment and do well and then get back into practice and continue to do well. So some things have happened in Michigan, not just because of what I went through, but because of the way they used to handle things. And people don't stay out seven years anymore for that kind of thing. And for the most part, people don't go to prison. Most people are a lot brighter than I was. It took me a long time to get it. But I had a lot of help along the way. You know, I had this fellowship. I've only missed a couple of meeting, IDA meetings since then, and I love, love this part of the year. I try not to miss it. It's the only place where I can look around and everybody understands what that little voice is. It's the only place that I know of where I can talk about counseling and I can talk about treatment and I can talk about going to prison and people don't look down on me. And by the way, I've told my whole staff my story and I'll tell anybody that will listen. I never did hide that. 
are probably the least anonymous of the Alcoholics Anonymous people I know. Because like Tom told me, when that little voice forgave me, I could I could let it go. I don't care what happened before. What happened before made me what I am now. And I rejoice in that. I just needed a little more training than most people needed. And, uh, you know, it's, that's the very same thing that makes you successful at basketball or golf in your practice. That same thing that makes you successful is what makes you sick. And if you can meet that in the middle and not let either side of it get too far out of the way, you can lead a balanced life. And I didn't know a whole lot about balance, but I'm learning through the grace of God in this program about balance. And I have a couple of people I need to thank. Uh, Jerry Shields and Tom Haynes, because uh, they saved my life. Thank you. I'm Skip. I'm an alcoholic. And I come here not to drink, so I don't have to drink. Um, I have a friend back in Vermont who goes to meetings and he introduces himself that way before every meeting. And there was a time when um, I wouldn't have said that. I would say that, well, I come to these meetings now because uh, I want to give it back or I come to these meetings because I want to be on a spiritual path. But I understand that the day will come when um, I've given enough back and I'm far enough along on the spiritual path. The day will never come when I don't need not to drink. And we've had a beautiful summer in Vermont, and there, there are days when I'm sitting on our porch, and uh, it's, it's time to get up and go to the meeting. And, you know, on, on those days, it's very easy to say, well, you know, my, my spiritual path is right here on the porch looking out over the beautiful Vermont landscape. But, um, you know, and that doesn't get me up out of my seat, but I don't want to drink anymore. And so I come to meetings, and uh, that's what keeps me coming back here. Uh, my story sounds like everybody else's. I um, I felt like I wasn't good enough. Uh, even though I did well in school, I felt like there were other people that were smarter than I was, and I could always find somebody that was taller, better athletically, better looking, smarter. Uh, and I never, and those were the people I chose to measure myself by. So I, I was very shy, and I, I just, I didn't feel feel like I belonged around people, and I felt like I didn't belong in the world. And then uh, when I was 18, uh, three friends of mine and I left our school in Connecticut and went to New York City, right after we graduated or right before we graduated. In those days, uh, the drinking age was 21 in Connecticut, and it was 18 in New York. And we went out to dinner and went to some clubs, and I got drunk for the first time. I'd had access to small amounts of liquor at home, but I'd never had access to uh, as much as I wanted to drink. And all of a sudden, I I felt like I was six foot two and uh, brilliant, and everybody liked me, and I felt like I belonged for the first time in my life. And that night, I um, I blacked out, I passed out, I threw up. Um, I have no idea what happened the last two or three hours of that night. My friends had to carry me up to our hotel room. I woke up in the morning uh, with the room turning around. I was seeing double. I was I was sick. I had the worst headache I'd ever had in my life. I thought I'd done myself permanent brain damage. And um, 
All I could think of is, man, I've got to do that again. I was wonderful. And at, at times we have insights into our lives that, uh, that are amazing. And I, you know, I remember thinking that day that I wonder if I'm an alcoholic. And I spent the next 30 years proving that I was not an alcoholic. Um, so I didn't drink in the morning and I didn't drink during the week. Um, I was, I was a binge drinker. I, I didn't even like to have one or two drinks because it interfered with my ability to study or read uh, or exercise. So when I drank, I, get to, I drank to get drunk. I went to college, uh, had an idea in the back of my mind that I wanted to go to medical school, so I did pre-med. In college, again, I, I studied hard during the week, um, and then come the weekends, I would, I would drink. Um, I'd wake up Sunday morning, wouldn't know where my car was. Uh, I didn't know that was called a blackout back then, but that's what it was. I had no idea where I parked my car. Um, and finally, that car thing got me into trouble. I, I got drunk one late one Saturday night, drove out, nearly ran over a bunch of people coming out of church, and, and then nearly ran, ran over a campus cop. Um, I was driving a little red Triumph, and uh, I was only maybe 400 yards from where I parked the car that I almost ran over the campus cop, and I got out of the car and realized I couldn't walk. Um, and I could sort of see the campus cop's light shining as he was running up the hill to try and find out who who ran him in, run him into the bushes. So I crawled under the car, uh, and the cop shone the, shone his light all around the car and inside the car and on the license plate, and then he left. And I said, "Boy, you know, I got out of that one okay." Well, I I forgot that they have these little things called license plates on cars. Um, so I got thrown out of college for a year, and um, you know I. I I didn't really think that I had a problem, and certainly nobody in college told me I had a problem. They just said, you know, you nearly killed some people, that's irresponsible, you have to leave college. So when they they took me back a year later, um, I I figured, you know, that was just an accident, it could have happened to anybody at this college, we all drank. Um, So about three or four weeks later, I found myself at one o'clock in the morning following the center line of the road from Hanover to Lebanon, I was going down to get a, a hamburger at an all-night uh, diner, and I was so drunk I couldn't see the line, I had, you know, closed one eye so I, I could see just one line, and I couldn't stay on the road unless I was in, in the middle of the road, and the cops picked me up, this time the state cops, and for some reason they they didn't give me a DWI, they, um, they made me call my roommate, one of my roommates who was totally ripped that he had to get up at 2 o'clock in the morning and come and pick up this drunk. And at that point, I realized that, that I had a problem. Um, so from that point on, I, I I never drove when I was drunk, and that solved the problem. And I never had a DWI, um, and I just, I just made sure that if I was going to be drunk, that I had a way to get home, or that I gave my keys to somebody. Um, I didn't do that 100% of the time, but I did it enough so I never got in trouble behind the wheel again. But I certainly didn't recognize that I that I had a problem with drinking because I didn't drink during the week. During the week, I didn't drink in the morning, um, except maybe once or twice a year when we we had a party that started in the morning. And I I did end up uh, going to medical school, and I I certainly knew that um, that drunk doctors were bad news, and I certainly wasn't going to be a drunk doctor, so. The same pattern held in medical school, only I actually drank less because, I, you know, I, I found that I needed to work pretty hard in medical school. 
and um, so I would only drink at those parties that we had after our exams. And again, I, I was the same pattern. I'd, I'd get drunk, I'd have a blackout, I'd be hungover for two days. And then I'd just go back to doing what I did. Um, graduated from medical school, did a year of internship, and then went into the Army and went to Germany. Um, and the same pattern held there. Uh, and then came back and started a practice, or actually became a partner in a practice in northern Vermont. And uh, I, I love medicine, always, always have. I, I'm definitely in the right profession. But things started to happen there that I that I didn't understand, and probably, you know, if I'd been able to be honest with myself, I might I might have been able to understand what was going on. But I got very busy. Um, you know, I get up at 6:30 in the morning, go in and do rounds, and uh, see 10 or 15 people. I'm, I was I'm a board certified family practitioner, and um, so I, I'd round on 15 people in the in the hospital, and then I'd go and see 30 or 40 people in the office, and go back to the hospital. And, and in those days, there wasn't any real really good call coverage. We're a pretty rural community, and um, so I was on call most weekends. And the phone would ring. I was doing a lot of pediatrics, and the phone would ring sometimes, you know, ten times between eleven o'clock at night and six in the morning. And um, so. Um, I was starting to drink a little bit at night and more and more on the weekends, and I was on call on the weekends. And, you know, I realized that I was not functional when I was drinking uh, and and that I was going to harm somebody if this went on. So I decided that the solution was to, to, to take uh, Valium um, and Percocet, and it, and it worked. You know, I, I could take Valium and Percocet. I, for some reason, I didn't slur my speech when I was on a Valium. I could remember the, the names and dosages of drugs. And um, gradually, over the years, I just started to use more and more narcotics. And eventually, um, I was shooting up large amounts of uh, IV Dilaudid, Demerol, morphine. Um, in the last few months, year, it's all kind of a blur. I was drinking every night, at least a little bit drunk every night, drunk every weekend, started to drink some in the morning. Um, of course, my wife had no idea about this. Um, as you can imagine, our, our marriage was not good, and I did the best I could, not consciously, I, I believed this, but I did the best I could to, to make her believe that the problems were, were her. She was just nicer and more pleasant and more cooperative. Um, and a better person that I that I would be fine. <laughs> At any rate, one night she uh, discovered me shooting up in the bathroom. Um, and to make a long story short, I ended up in treatment um, in West Palm Beach for a month. And I I was coming off a lot of drugs at that point. I was on a lot of alcohol. A lot of tranquilizers, benzodiazepines, and uh, a whole lot of narcotics. While I was there, I did a, a fourth and fifth step, and um, the uh, the nun that was my therapist said, well, you, you know, you're going to have to go back and go to a lot of meetings uh, back in your hometown. And I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a very busy doctor, and there aren't many meetings. I mean, I, she said, well, you, you really need to go to a meeting every night. And I said, no, I, I just don't see how I can do that. So we agreed that I would go to three meetings a week. And I got back to Coventry, Vermont, on a pink cloud. Um, 
thinking this is wonderful, recovery is wonderful, and I'm going to be fine. And I, I got off this plane, and this this awful feeling started to come over me. You know, that Monday morning I was going to have to go back to work, and nobody knew this had been going on. Um, nobody. And I had a an office full of goodies, and I just knew that, that I wasn't going to be able to stay clean. So that Sunday night, um, I went looking for an NA meeting, a Narcotics Anonymous meeting. And in those days, again, we were in a very rural community. There wasn't anything available in where we lived. So I went 40 miles, 30 miles to uh, St. Johnsbury, and uh, there were two people at the meeting. And I sat down, and I, you know, they could tell what was going on. And this one girl, a woman, I'll, I'll never forget her. She's still around. Uh, she'd been a prostitute in New York City and was a heroin addict and had eight years clean. And she sat there and talked to me for an hour, just told me her story. And, you know, I looked at this woman and I said, you know, this woman is, is eight years clean. And, and she went all through all these experiences in New York City. And if she can do it, I can do it. And, and I held on to that. And, and I didn't go to three meetings a week. I called one of the doctors in town, told, told her what was going on and that I needed to have her cover for me for a couple of hours every night, and I proceeded to go to AA and NA um, just about every night. I couldn't go every night, but I sure went at least seven times a week and usually eight or nine times a week. Um, and I did that for a long time. And and that kept me clean and sober for a while, but, you know, I, I guess the, the best way to describe my approach to the program in, in those years, that was 14, 13 years ago, was that it, um, I approached the program as, what an order, I can't go through with it. Um, I could go to meetings, but I, I never got a sponsor. Well, I, I got a sponsor, and then I called him once, didn't like what he said, and, and avoided him from that point on. Um, I figured when, when we were doing at step meetings, we talk about the, the fourth and fifth step, and I'd say, well, I've already done the fourth and fifth step. Well, you can imagine what kind of a fourth and fifth step I did uh, three weeks off of the drugs that I was on. I mean, you know, I was, was lucky if I knew my name, and it was just one long guilt trip. But I'd done a fourth and fifth step, and I wasn't going to do another one. So nothing changed in my life. Um, I kept working those long hours. Couldn't be honest with myself about the way I felt and what I was doing. And finally, about three, three and a half years into that kind of recovery, um, and I was coming to IDAA at that point, too. I um, I loved to run, and I was I had a back injury, and, you know, I was in a bad place and had no way to, no insight into what was going on in my life. No sponsor, wasn't talking to anybody, was lying at meetings. And I just went out one day and said, you know, I've got to run. This is, you know, I've, I've just... I just need to run to relieve the stress. And the best thing to do, because my back hurts and I can't run, is to go to the office and take a Darvacet. So I did. You know, no no sense that this might be a bad idea. And I lied about it. I didn't come back into the meetings and, and admit that I was I had relapsed. And I would, what happened at that point is I would be clean for a while and then I'd use for a while and I'd be clean for a while and I'd use for a while. And somebody yesterday talked about... Um, people who, who come briefly into your life or just do one thing that, that 
is an intervention and may save you. Well, my nurse, who'd been my nurse for, I think, about 10 years at that point, um, knew about my addiction at that point. I, I did tell my office staff and, and set up some protective mechanisms. And I was skimming Percocets from some of my patients, and she set me up. She uh, took a bottle of Percocet, a patient who was there for something, and put it in the, in the middle of the examining table. And then she was doing something in the room across the hall so she could watch. And I skimmed some Percocet off there, and about an hour later she confronted me and said, what you got in your pocket? And um, I ended up back in treatment. And, you know, this, this is amazing. There aren't a whole lot of people out there that would do that. This is my nurse. And she sat me down and she confronted me. And that was a, took a tremendous amount of courage. And, uh, you know, I, I tell her to this day that she probably saved my life. It doesn't work for me anymore. Um, but that's because we've each gone our own, own way. And I don't work in the office anymore and she's, she's working in the local hospital, but she's still somebody that I cherish in my life. So I went, I went to treatment for three months in, in Milwaukee, did another fourth and fifth step. And came back, and this would, this would be about eight years ago, um, and said, you know, I'm probably one of these constitutional people that, that can't get this program, and, I, you know, I, this is pretty scary, and I, I'm just going to have to do this the way, it, the way it's suggested, and not think about it, and just do it. So I, I got a sponsor as soon as I got back, and um, I, did, I did another fourth step as soon as I got home. Um, and it was it was a thorough and 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 as honest as I could be fourth step, and I and then then I did my fifth step with my sponsor, and um, I have stayed clean and sober since then. Uh, my my relationship with with Mary Ellen, my wife, has uh, has changed amazingly. I mean, we're supposed to talk about a spiritual spiritual journey here, and um, this has been a spiritual journey for me. I mean, all my life I've been looking for a spiritual journey, and I, you know, I, I couldn't find it. And I think somehow the the alcohol and drugs, you know, filled a hole in me that 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 I, w I was looking to fill with a spiritual life and didn't know where to go or how to go about it. And this this program has provided that. And you know, one of the things that's happened is that my relationship with my family is. is it's been incredible since I've been in recovery. Uh, Mary Ellen and I got in a couples group. Um, a couple from uh, New Jersey came up to northern Vermont, and they had been in a couples group, and they started a couple group, couples group. And uh, We did that for eight or nine years, uh, almost, almost every week. And, you know, a lot, of the, a lot of the couples in that group are divorced or separated, and uh, but a, a few of the couples have done well, and... and that, that has really saved my relationship um, with my wife. It's been wonderful in my recovery. You know, I, I there are certain things that that stay with me the whole year from IDAA. That that beginners' night and seeing those guys going up on the stage and, and giving their their brief stories uh, just reminds me of, of of where I've been and and where I am now. And it's wonderful to sit there. It's you know, it's a long night, but it's it's great. Um, Paul always played a, a big part in my recovery. Uh, you know, I, I love page 449, but even more, I, I love when he, he talks about a new pair of glasses. Um, you know, gratitude is, is where I am today. It's, it's what keeps me sober. And 
he, he talks about about looking at Maxine through a new pair of glasses, and and you know whenever I'm I'm feeling sorry for myself, and I, I used to live a life of self pity. Um, I can remember sitting in my office just just with the tears running down my face, just feeling that I was so victimized and and, and you know in such pain and such a sorry sorry person, and life was so hard. Uh, I have maybe three seconds of that once a week now, and I whenever I start to think of that, I, I think of a new pair of glasses, you know, it's just, a, it's just a matter of looking at life through a new pair of glasses. I don't feel sorry for myself anymore. I think life is wonderful. And, and Hal's uh, talk on gratitude, I go to that every year. Um, and, I, you know, Dick was saying that, that he has to hear it over and over again until it's really in his brain. And I saw Hal at the, uh, at the um, International last year in, in Minneapolis where he was speaking and I, I went up to say hello to him and said, "Is this great? I get to hear you talk twice this year." And he said, "Well, you know, I say the same thing every year at every talk." And I said, "Yeah, well, I hope so, because um, I need to hear that." And you know, again, when that little bit of self-pity starts to come up, I hear uh, in my brain, I hear Hal back there talking, and he says, "Number six, grateful I have a job, but I don't have a job. Grateful you don't have a job, so you can go to more meetings." And the message there is not that it's not what's on my gratitude list. It's my attitude. Um, whatever my attitude is, that's where my gratitude comes from. Um, Mary Ellen had a bout with breast cancer almost five years ago, and um, when she was first being worked up, she went into Newport for a bone scan, and um, she said as she left. That, well, you know, the doctor just said this is a baseline. Well, you know, I've been around long enough. We don't do baseline bone scans. I knew what they were looking for. And um, so she was supposed to go up and, and be there at 1 o'clock. And, and, you know, I know both bone scans take a long time. You have to wait for the for the injection to, to be picked up by the bone. And, and um, so she was supposed to be back around 3 or 3.30. And 3.30 came and she wasn't there. And 4 o'clock came. And 4.30 came. And by 5 o'clock... I was just a wreck. Um, I had it all figured out that the bone scan was positive, and then of course they then had to call her doctor, and her doctor ordered a, a skeletal survey, and she was there getting a skeletal survey, and they're trying to figure out how to rush her down to, to Dartmouth Hitchcock so she could start chemotherapy right away. And I, I knew that's what was going on, and um, and I was a wreck. And I, you know, I got down on my knees, and I I believe it's okay to pray for for what you want, but I, I know that God knows what I want, so I, I just prayed for the strength to to get through what was going to happen, and um, and I was not grateful. Um, I was mad and scared and resentful, and, you know, I swear, I, I heard these words in my head, um, isn't 30 years long enough, and you know, I realized that I'd, I'd had this wonderful woman in my life for 30 years, and she might not have been there at all. And um, that 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 fear disappeared; it went away. And uh, I just I just realized that you know that was enough. And I I told that story a couple of weeks ago at a at an AA Al-Anon uh, convention, and there was a guy in the room who after, after I spoke stood up and told the story about his about having a hard life on the streets and, and finally got clean and sober and never thought he'd have a relationship and finally had a relationship and had a wonderful daughter and that daughter had a grandchild and it was the most wonderful thing in his life and he went in and saw this grandchild and 
held her in his arms and went back to work and, and got a call later that day that, that she had crashed and she was on a respirator and he went rushing to the hospital and, and, um, and was praying on his way to the hospital and he, and said the same thing I said. He was angry and scared and sad and how could this happen? And he said, the boy said to him, wasn't that one day the most wonderful day in your life you had with your granddaughter and wasn't that enough? And, uh, you know, he said, yes, it was. And, of course, that, that granddaughter was fine. Um, the end of the story with, with Mary Ellen is that uh, I, I think she went shopping and she, she came back and <laughs> she was, she was fine and still is fine. Um, I want to say a word about sponsorship. Um, this is a big spiritual part of my program. I, uh, you know, sponsorship where I am, it's a small community and almost all the newcomers that come into the program are, are court orders. And they don't have licenses and our, our meetings are sort of far flung and you need wheels to get to the, to the meetings and, and, you know, so when somebody asks me to be a sponsor, they're usually court ordered and I know what's coming. The next thing is that I'm gonna have to pick them up and drive them to meetings, which I do. Um, and then, you know, when I get there, license back and they don't have to go to the meetings anymore, they disappear. Um, and I, I, you know, I hear over and over again, well, you know, maybe they're not sober, but I am. And that's, that's true, but, <laughs> you know, that's not quite enough. It's nice to see uh, a sponsee stick once in a while and do well. And I haven't had a whole lot of that in my life, but um, this last, uh, this last year, two sponsees have come into my life that have been just great. And, uh, they came in both at about the same time, and uh, you know it's it's just wonderful to to be able to share the program that re- with somebody that really wants it. Um, I have a I have a sponsee who's been telling me the last two or three years to go to this retreat that we have locally at a monastery, and um, I I always do what my sponsees tell me to do. So so last year I went to this retreat at a, at a monastery in in Quebec. And it was, it was wonderful. Um, and I, you know, I am on a spiritual path, path and I take that seriously, our spiritual quest. And I, you know, I've always thought of, of Catholic monks as sort of people that just sort of pray and who else, who knows what else they do. And these guys came in during this retreat. It was a, it was an AA retreat and it was pretty much all, uh, all guys just having meetings and talking AA, but, the, the monks came in a couple of times a day and would sort of talk to us about their lives. And they knew a lot about AA. And um, it was amazing to listen to these guys talk because they're on a spiritual path very much like we're on. And, um, you know, one thing I learned there was that, you know, I've, I've sort of done dab- dabbled into Buddhism and other worldly religions. And they uh, they talked about that and said that you can find God through any kind of, many different paths. Um, But they said, one thing to think about if you're living in America and you're in AA and you're on a spiritual path is that you have certain cultural traditions that you've grown up with. And if you you look to an Eastern religion to as a path to God, you're going to have some tremendous blocks there because there's a cultural tradition that's built up around religions and uh, you might find it easier and they weren't talking about joining a church or anything, but you might find it easier and better to understand and better to connect with a, a Western religion as a, as a spiritual path. And I saw that these guys were 
you know, as, as, as spiritual as, as any monk in, in India and, and on a, on a real spiritual quest. And that's made a big difference in, in, in you know, my approach to spirituality in the past year. Um, and I, I want to talk about a little bit about doing the steps where I, where I come from and I, I don't, it's good recovery where I am, and I don't mean this to be critical, but it's been part of my problem with AA is that the, doing the steps is, is optional in my AA community, and that may be part of part of why it was so hard for me to get the program because I'll, I'll look around for the easy, softer way, and there were a lot of easy, easy softer ways in, in my AA community. Um, I've been doing uh, AWOL, I don't know if everybody knows what that is, but I'm sure some of you do, that's a way of life where you, and actually Paul O was instrumental in, in getting me to do this with uh, my AA community, um, I talked to him a couple of times about it here, and uh, it's just an intensive 12-step, I think it takes 30 meetings or 25 meetings, and you go over the 12 steps intensively, and you, and you do a fourth step, and you do a fifth step, and it's, it's great, you're in a group, uh, you meet once a week, and, and uh, Everybody kind of encourages each other to, to actually do the steps. And because I've, I've gotten two new gung-ho sponsees this past year, I we decided to, to do another AWOL. And so I've just done my fourth and fifth step, and, and we're working on the sixth and seventh steps now. And um, I think it's important to do the steps. I mean, I, you know, I, I was thinking, well, these guys are going to want to do their fourth step, and the easiest way to do it is just to have an AWOL group, and we'll just get it done. And, um you know, I'm not thinking about, I'm thinking, now. you know, I don't need to do another fourth step. I've done too many of these. And, um, not so, uh, you know, I'm still peeling the onion. There's still stuff coming up. And and the sixth and seventh step this time jumped out at me. You know, I, I read somewhere recently that um, you can go over and over and over the fourth and fifth step. And you keep coming up with new stuff and you keep coming up with old stuff and and then you get to the sixth and seventh step, and you say I'm entirely willing, and, and uh, you, you go to church, and you get on your knees, and you, you pray that, that God will remove all these defects of character, and then you get up and you leave, and you go on to the eighth step. Um, well, you know, I it, it occurred to me this past time that the, the sixth and step, seventh step are probably the core of the program. Um, I don't believe that, that that God is going to remove these defects of character if I don't make some effort to stop doing it. Um, you know, if, if I'm still impatient at the grocery store when somebody's writing a check in front of me and tapping my foot and tapping the, the, the counter and acting like they're idiots and how can they possibly be writing a check, why don't they have a charge card, um, and getting angrier and angrier, then, you know, I'm, I'm not doing my part. And that's obviously a, a, a minor incident, but, you know, that's that tends to be the way my life goes. And, um, if I'm not making an effort to change my behavior and things that I've identified in my fourth step, how can I expect God to to come and remove remove these defects? Um, you know, it doesn't doesn't work that way. It didn't work that way for my alcoholism. Um, I didn't get down on my knees and pray and God removed all these, uh, my desire to drink and use drugs. I did that plenty of times over the, over the toilet bowl and it never worked. Um, I I had to walk into these rooms. I had to walk in day after day. And eventually I had to do that, that horrible, terrifying thing, call another man on the telephone and ask him for help. Um, and I had to do the steps and to sit down and do the work. Um, and I, and I, I think the rest of my addictions, the rest of my character defects 
probably will be with me probably the rest of my life, but um, I can't expect God to, to start to remove them unless I'm willing to, to do some effort in that direction. Um, I guess that's all I have to say. I I, I love AA, and um, it's a huge part of my life. If I don't go to a meeting every day, I, I see somebody, have lunch with somebody um, in AA, and and that would I've heard a thousand times, but I have to say it. I, IDAA is, is the icing on the cake. I, I love coming here. Thanks. My name is Jim. I'm an alcoholic. I'm a physician from Montgomery, Alabama. And if there are any Texans in the audience, my sobriety date is February the 9th, uh, 1992. Uh, actually, I was never quite sure what the sobriety date really was. I, I didn't know whether that was the last day you drank or the first day you didn't drink. Uh, but since my memory is so bad, I, I found that 2992, which was the last day I drank, would, would be a good way to remember it. Uh, I also brought some notes up here because <clears throat> uh, two Russian friends of mine took a lot of my memory cells away, I'm afraid, and, and I have trouble keeping on on, uh, on, on the right path. Uh, their names, of course, were Smirnoff and Popoff. Uh, I, uh, uh, my story is like everybody else, and uh, I understand that the way we are to tell our story is... Uh, what it was like, what happened, and what it's like today. And in the past, when I've told my story, I've always spent too much time on what it was like and not enough on what happened, and especially on what it's like today. So I want to try to uh, change that a little way, ways and uh, and spend more time on what, it, what, what it's like today, uh, which is really the most important part of my story. Uh, <clears throat> I, I grew up in a small town in North Alabama in what we call Tri-County, that means there was no legal alcohol, though. They had moonshine, and they had what's called homebrew, which was a homemade beer. Uh, and uh, but, but no legal alcohol. And <clears throat> my, my family was a loving family. I was the only child for nine years. And then uh, later, my folks had uh, two other uh, boys, uh, both of whom were physicians, and neither of whom drank. Uh, I'm not sure what... what happened to me, but uh, it had something to do with what everybody else said. Somehow in my childhood, in my growing up, and especially in my teenage years, I never quite felt like I fit in. You know, I was an all-state football player, captain of the football team, president of senior class, all the things that, that and, and my grades were good enough, but I really never studied because uh, school was very easy to me. Uh, so I spent most of my time disrupting classes and things like that, calling attention to myself. Because uh, I was a very self-centered, self-serving person, but I, I, I had this somewhere in the back of my brain something that says, you know, you're not quite as good as some of these other folks. Uh, <clears throat> uh, when I was 15 years old, uh, uh, a, a guy asked me if I wanted to ride over to Huntsville, which is 40 miles away, and he wanted to buy some uh, peppermint-flavored gin because uh, he wanted to try to get his girlfriend drunk so he could see if he could make out with it. Well, I said, sure, I'll go. And, and I got in the back of the pickup truck and rode over to Huntsville, and he bought four pints of that gin, gave one to me in the back of the truck there, and took the rest in the front seat with himself and, and another guy who was there. Well, on the way back, that 40 miles, I drank a pint of gin. Uh, it didn't taste too bad. And, and I remember 
by the time we got uh, back to my hometown, you know, I was greedy and charming, benevolent, powerful, rich, handsome, uh, patriotic, all those things that, uh, <coughs> all those things that alcohol does. Uh, the only problem was, about 20 minutes later, I started to get sick, and then I spent several hours throwing up and rolling around on the floor with stomach aches, and then uh, managed to get smuggled into my house, past my parents, and into bed, and woke up the next day with a horrible headache. And uh, like somebody else said this morning, the thing I remembered about that day was that first hour, the feelings that, that not only that it took away, but the things that it, it gave me. And that started my romance with alcohol. Uh, as I said, I was 15 when that happened. Uh, I spent my 55th birthday at Talbot Recovery Center, so for 40 years, I, I, I chased that, that alcohol for me. Uh, <clears throat> it was, uh, it was good at first. Uh, as, for the next couple of years until I got to college, I still didn't get a chance to drink very often, but when I did, I always drank too much, I always had the good feelings, and I always got sick. When I got to college, uh, I had uh, turned down some football scholarships. And looking back on that uh, from perspective of honesty now, I think the reason I did that, or I know the reason I did it, was because I was afraid I couldn't, I would fail. I couldn't play college football. And besides, I was interested in joining fraternities and pursuing a social life at the uh, University of Alabama where I went to college. And I did that. Uh, looking back on some of those pictures of my fraternity pledge class now, I, I see that there were an awful lot of alcohol abusers in that in that group, and I was one of the number one guys. Uh, <clears throat> we used to have a club my senior year called the 511 Club, and we would meet at 511 in the afternoon and start drinking, and uh, usually we drank things like martinis and stuff like that. Uh, we took the time five to the, the uh, 5.11 term from Isaiah 5.11, which says, Woe unto those who rise up early in the morning that they may follow strong drink, that tarry late to wine and flame them. So that was our flood. Uh, <clears throat> at the time, if I know that that's what was going to happen to me, I think I probably would have done something different. But uh, I, I finished college okay, got to medical school, and uh, continued the same thing. I remember pledging with my roommates our freshman year, which was supposed to be the hardest part of medical school, that we would not let a week go by without getting it drunk at least one time. And so I was able to do that and still make good grades in my uh, freshman year. In my sophomore year, I got married. <coughs> and uh, during the time I was in med school, I had a daughter and uh, two and, and twin boys. Uh, I did my residency in Birmingham. And during my residency, I uh, continued the same pattern. I was OBGYN. When I was not on call, I drank. And uh, occasionally when I was on call, I drank. But I really didn't think a lot about it because everybody else did the same thing. Uh, I I managed to pick up uh, a couple of DUIs, and uh, I spent a couple of nights in jail in other cities uh, for alcohol-related events, but it was just kind of one of those boys will be boys, I thought. Uh, at the time, I would sometimes lie awake at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning when I was on OB call and wonder if I was an alcoholic. Uh, later, I found out that normal people don't do that. Uh, 
I, I finished my residency, moved to Montgomery, where I established a practice with um, three other uh, men who had been at practice. All of them were almost 20 years older than I was. <coughs> uh, they were good mentors for OBGYN, but uh, they didn't seem to be able to help me with uh, my other problem, which was drinking. Uh, a couple of times, one of them said something to me about it, but uh, I always let it go by and said, I can take care of it, and I'll never drink when I'm on call. And I was fortunate I was with three other people, so I, I had at least three days out of every four that I could drink. Uh, my drinking pattern was, uh, you know, if, if I had alcohol in the house, I would use it drinking. I remember one time reading somewhere in a wine connoisseur's book that if you bought a case of a good Cabernet Sauvignon from California, put it in a closet, and then took out a bottle every six months, you just understand how wine ages. Uh, it sounded like a great idea. So I bought two cases. And they lasted two months. Uh, but that was the way, that was my pattern. If it was around, I drank it. Uh, the only way I could keep from drinking at the time was not to have alcohol in the house. Uh, that didn't happen very often. Uh, <clears throat> I, I, I continued to have problems with alcohol. I was embarrassed myself and my family at parties. I, I, I didn't mind you know, doing a head plant and my salad at the table sometimes. And and my kids were all distressed about this, but uh, but you know were really kind of afraid of me. They they, uh, they didn't know what to do. Uh, and and I still didn't think that I had a problem. Uh, as a matter of fact, I always thought that alcoholism was about one or two steps away from where I have to be at the time. If, uh, if, if, if alcoholics were uh, uh, people who drank before sundown, then I always waited until sundown. And then I decided that they were people who drank before noon, so I always waited until afternoon. And then I decided people who drank in the morning were alcoholics, and I didn't drink in the morning until later. Uh, but I eventually broke all those rules and still managed to not believe that I was an alcoholic. Uh, at least my mind didn't believe it. My heart, I, my heart knew it. Uh, <clears throat> in, in 1983, my family, uh, two of my two of my, my children and uh, my wife and one of my brothers uh, and an Episcopal priest who was a close friend of mine <clears throat> did an intervention on me, and uh, they asked me to go to treatment. They had the room reserved, all that sort of thing. It was all set up, and uh, I, I managed to convince them that I could handle it myself, and if I couldn't, then then I would go to treatment. So I came home to Montgomery. That happened in Birmingham. I came home to Montgomery, and I uh, I, <clears throat> I found a friend that I knew was in AA, and, and he took me to my first AA meeting. Uh, and you know it was okay. Uh, after that, for four or five months, I, I didn't drink at all. I went to a meeting every week, and I read the big book, big book one weekend. I didn't get a sponsor, and I didn't work any of the steps, because I didn't see any of the steps really that applied to me. Uh, I, I, I realized I was powerless over alcohol, but it, but it didn't say permanently. So, <laughs> so uh, I, I, I like that term that uh, Danny Angrish used yesterday, that uh, grandiose defense. And I had a lot of that. Uh, and as I said, I stayed dry for four or five months, and I 
quit going to the meeting I went to. Uh, I had a couple of drinks one day at a party and, and, and found that, uh, you know, I could do it with two drinks. That, that worked fine. Uh, it took about uh, three or four months before I started drinking daily again. And <clears throat> I, I just got more careful about it. Uh, I, I would drink before I went to parties rather than at parties. People always wonder how I got so drunk at a party when I didn't, they didn't see me drinking. Uh, I started carrying miniatures in my pocket. I even started wearing pleated pants, which I really didn't particularly like because I could conceal more things in the, in, in, in the pocket. <clears throat> uh, when I played golf, I carried, you know, 10 or 12 miniatures in my golf bag and, and people always wondered, you know, how I could play nine holes and all of a sudden I couldn't play the last nine holes. What happened to this guy? Uh, so I, I kept going at that. Uh, my, my family, uh, you know, I got, in, in 1991, uh, my life was totally miserable. <clears throat> I, I used to drive down the street going to my, my office in the morning, and I, I'd see people working in ditches, and I'd think, these guys have got to be happier than I am. Uh, and my wife was having recurrent depression episodes. Uh, she'd gone to a couple of uh, hospitals where the doctors had mentioned to me that some of her problem might be because of my alcoholism. And I said, but I'm not an alcoholic. Uh, and that's as far as I ever took it. Uh, <clears throat> I had not gotten into any kind of trouble with patients as far as I knew. Uh, I still didn't drink during office hours, and, and I was still not drinking while I was on call. Uh, <clears throat> so I was okay. Uh, uh, the summer of 1991, uh, Dr. Jerry Summer came to Montgomery, I mean, came to the state of Alabama from Florida. He, he was, prior to, to his coming to Alabama, our physician's health program was called the impaired physician, a term I really hated because my wife used to use it all the time. Uh, <clears throat> and, uh, <clears throat> he came as the first, uh, head of, of that department. Prior to that, it had been done by committee and, and really not done very well. Uh, I'd seen his picture on the cover of our state medical association. I knew who he was. And, uh, that summer, uh, my wife was sent to Sierra Tucson for codependence. And while there, they had a family week. So my daughter, uh, who was working in New York at the time, and, and I went to the family week there at Sierra Tucson. And while I was there, the first day, uh, Dr. George Nash, who was a member of this, uh, society, uh, association, told his story. He was the medical director there at the time. And I thought, Sounds like me. Uh, it was amazing. And so we went to groups, uh, for a week, and at the end of the week, uh, they said Dr. Nash wanted to, wanted to see me in his office, so I went in and, and I figured he wanted to tell me how I could help out with my wife's problems, and, and he said, you know, you need to go to treatment. And I said, well, maybe I do, but, uh, I'll handle it myself when I get home. He actually wanted me to stay there. Uh, so when I got home, it was, Early fall, uh, my wife, uh, got out of Sierra Tucson immediately, uh, relapsed into her codependency and depression problems, wound up in another hospital. I was at home in a big house in the country, totally alone, uh, I, I didn't do anything socially. My sons were both living in different cities and, and when they called on the phone, they could immediately feel I'd been drinking and they figured something really hang up. Uh, my daughter had gone to a treatment center after that and uh, had come out of 
treatment center uh, with a diagnosis of multiple personalities and uh, had accused me of sexually abusing her as a child. Uh, so she was out of my life completely. And, uh, you know, I, I was totally miserable. Uh, life was unbearable. And about that time, uh, I got a call from Dr. Summer. But my denial was still so strong. He wanted to come by my office. His office was a couple of, couple of blocks away. He wanted to come by my office to talk with him. And uh, I thought he honestly wanted for me to help him with his program. Uh, he came by my office that afternoon, and he brought the uh, executive secretary of the medical association with him. Uh, and they sat down, and he said, you know, I have reason to believe that you have a drinking problem. And I said, I do. And he said, I want you to go to get an evaluation. And I said, where? And he said, you know, you got two choices. You can go to this place in Mississippi or this place in Georgia. And I said, when? as soon as you can. And later I found out that he had told his executive secretary that he wanted him to see how tough doctors were to intervene on. And he brought him by my office as a great example. And he said, I was the easiest intervention he'd ever done. I was... I was ready. I mean, I had reached that at that point. You know, there's, there's a point in your intuition where it's just sometimes it's just a, a rearrangement of facts. Uh, the facts in my life were I drank too much and I was terribly unhappy. I was miserable. Uh, all the time before that, I thought that I drank too much because of that. Somehow, I rearranged the facts and I thought maybe I'm miserable and unhappy because I drank too much. So, I had my evaluation. Uh, in Mississippi, and uh, it, it was supposed to be a four-day evaluation. I only took him two days to say that I was an alcoholic and I could come home and get ready to go to treatment. Uh, <clears throat> they did want me to have a, a surgical procedure done on my hand before I went to treatment because they didn't want me to use any kind of uh, opiates or anything like that uh, after I got out because they wanted me to have to be, have no chance of, of relapsing into that sort of thing. Uh, I, I didn't use pills or any other drugs. Uh, Alcohol was my drug of choice. Uh, after the surgery, I, I took uh, a couple of Mepergans until I was able to drive down to the liquor store and get my, my Russian buddy. And uh, <clears throat> so after the surgical procedure, I went to the Talbot Recovery Center. Uh, February the 10th, 1992. Uh, and I spent six months there. It was... You know, quite an experience. As, as anybody who's been to treatment knows, it was it was painful. It was soul searching, uh, and I, I learned an awful lot about myself. Our, our routine there was the first four to six weeks you spend working on the first step, uh, fracture denial. Uh, after that, you do your second, third step, and then you spend the next however long you're there working on a fourth step, and then you give your fifth step before you leave. Uh, well. I worked up a pretty good first step, I thought, with the help of my roommates, and uh, and I gave it, and I passed on the first go. So I thought, well, you know, this is a pretty big, big, big thing here. I, I didn't have to repeat it, uh, and that was a pretty big thing too, because a lot of people did. Well, then I <clears throat> I got through the second, third steps as well as I could, and and then I started working on my fourth step, and and once I looked at myself. With, for the first time in my life, with honesty, through the fourth step, I thought, God, all the things that I have put on to other people, all the things that I've blamed on situations and other other persons in my life, they're mine. Uh, 
And I got really excited about the force step. You know, some people say it's painful and difficult, but God, I loved it. I, you know, I just I jumped into it with as much enthusiasm as I did when I jumped into the bottles of, of vodka. Uh, and, and I did a very thorough and searching moral inventory myself. And, and, and I, I was excited about doing the fifth step, and, and I did that. Uh, I was so excited about it that I thought maybe I didn't do a good first step, and maybe I ought to go back and repeat my first step one more time, you know. And they wouldn't let me do that. They said, nobody repeats their first step voluntarily. So I said, okay. Uh, <clears throat> but I did it in my own mind, and, and, and I found out that I'd even been dishonest in my first step. So with all this newfound honesty and stuff, <clears throat> uh, I, I went through two family weeks uh, at the treatment center, and my wife came over for the first one, and she actually wound up as a patient in Anchor Hospital because of a situation there that uh, she threatened to commit suicide if I didn't get straightened out or something like that. At any rate, uh, <clears throat> as, as I got ready to get discharged, uh, it was the wisdom of the staff that I don't move back into my uh, house, that I, I live with another recovering person and uh, and try to work on my marriage sometime later. Uh, so I, I left TRC on a Saturday morning, which was the routine after our Caduceus meeting on Saturday. Uh, I moved into an apartment with an attorney uh, who had recently divorced his wife and, and had been sober for several years. And I, I lived in that apartment uh, for two and a half years with that attorney, uh, which was a real trial for me. But uh, it, it, you know, it worked. He, he, he became my sponsor. He, he and I became good friends. Uh, I learned a lot about uh, attorneys. And and uh, I think he learned a lot more about physicians, uh, but we had a good relationship. <clears throat> and uh, my my marriage did not survive sobriety. Uh, I found out later that, that that often happens. You know, the alcohol was what was the cement that glued us together those last few years. Uh, so after a, I agreed to wait a year uh, uh, in my sobriety to to do anything major and. Uh, so after a year, I <clears throat> filed for divorce. In the meantime, my sons had, had, and I had become good friends again. My daughter, I didn't know whether she was dead or alive. I had no idea where she was uh, or what was going on. Uh, no communication at all. I worked on that real hard because I knew I had not done the things that she had accused me of. Uh, I went to groups. I went to private therapists. I, I did everything. The most important thing I did was was go to AA meetings and learn acceptance and gratitude and all the things that I've learned in these meetings. Uh, I, uh, I I had uh, uh, I, we had to join an IDAA when we were in treatment, so I did that and and I started getting the literature. and In 1993, uh, the the meeting was going to be in uh, Scottsdale. And I noticed before the meeting, I had no you know, interest in going to the meeting, but I noticed that they had a trip to the Grand Canyon planned before the meeting. And to digress a little bit, when I was a Boy Scout in the 50s, uh, we took a trip out to California to a national jamboree. And uh, one of the things we were going to do on the way home from the jamboree was spend the night on the rim of the canyon. Well, when we got there, my roommate uh, at the time, who was now a famous trauma surgeon down in New Orleans, got appendicitis, so we wound up, instead of staying at the rim of the Grand Canyon, we stayed in the gym in, uh, in some place in Arizona. And so I'd always figured, someday I'm going to get back to the Grand Canyon. 
Well, that was my chance to go to the Grand Canyon and then I could fool around with the meeting and, and that would take care of that. I went to uh, the meeting and I went to the Grand Canyon first. When I came back, I decided to go to some of the meetings and I fell in love with IDAA. Uh, what a great organization, great people. Uh, I feel very fortunate. I've been able to go back to all the meetings since then. Uh, <clears throat> as I said, I divorced a year later and uh, began dating a, a, a wonderful woman who has been to all the meetings with me since then, and uh, <clears throat> and we married uh, two years ago. Uh, as a matter of fact, I've been in four weddings in the last three years. Uh, three years ago, my daughter wrote me a letter and said she'd like to try to reestablish communication, and I found it. <clears throat> she was uh, living in Atlanta, uh, and uh, and she was working. And she had uh, gotten over her multiple personality disorder, and and you know, wanted to try to work things out. So uh, I went over, talked with her. Uh, we agreed to, uh, to enter therapy together about this uh, accusation, which we'd done, and we've gotten that all cleared away. Uh, two, three years ago, I was in. I was best man at one of my son's weddings. Uh, last year, uh, I mean, uh, two, two years ago, no, yeah, two years ago I got married. Uh, last year my daughter got married and I was in her wedding. And this year my other son got married and I was his best man. So those are just some of the benefits that, uh, that, that I've found in my life. Uh, I stopped seeing patients last year. Uh, actually a year and a half ago, and I, I work now as a surgical assistant in GYN. Uh, <clears throat> I still go to three or four meetings a week. I, I, I go to a Caduceus meeting uh, once or twice a week and, and uh, at least two to three street AA meetings. Uh, when I got out of treatment, I did 90 and 90 for about three years. Uh, I, I found that, you know, uh, I, I, somebody told me, when man listens, God talks. And I found out that, that uh, I heard God in AA. Uh, I have a home group at home, and, and we split up into groups, and I still go to the beginner's group because I figure I can help them more and they can help me more uh, in a beginner's thing than some kind of general discussion group. They're always excited when I'm coming back from my IDAA because I bring back all these great slogans and other uh, ideas, thoughts, which are all the same that have been around for 60-something years but just said in a different way. Uh, my IDA, I mean my Caduceus group is always excited because I bring back a set of tapes that they can all listen to. Uh, <clears throat> hopefully, uh, we can get, uh, uh, I, we, we can get, uh, more people in, in the state of Alabama to, uh, to participate in IDAA. I've certainly, uh, been trying in the last couple of years to, to get more people to sign up. Uh, to me, it's, it's a wonderful thing. I, I've, I met and, and, uh, Paul O and Max. Uh, I've, I've heard Clancy, not at uh, an IDA meeting, but at, at a Texas recovery meeting several years ago. Uh, I've heard, you know, some of the giants of AA, and, and uh, yesterday I heard Nell, which I was uh, amazed. I, I heard Dr. Tversky last year talk about her story, and, and now I got to hear her. Uh, so, you know, it, it's it's always an adventure. Uh, I guess my spiritual odyssey began when I took my first drink, and uh, 
and it's continued since then. Uh, I started going back to church, and uh, I, somehow I hear uh, sermons differently now. I hear the messages are different. They're, they're recovery-oriented. I guess I hear what I need to hear. Uh, one of my priests told me that, uh, you know, to look for the presence of God in your life, uh, which I had started doing in the treatment center, I found that uh, I would often be struggling with a problem and I would go to a, an AA meeting, which we did every day, and that might be the subject, you know. And, and I would hear somebody else's strength and hope uh, and how to solve my problem. Uh, so I figure if I don't go to a meeting, I've missed something. And something, and it's usually something I should have heard. Uh, he told me that, that looking for the presence of God in my life is, say, like looking for a color in a room like this. You know? uh, if you're not aware of the color blue, in this room, then you don't you don't see it. But if you start looking for the color blue, they're here. It's here in all different shades, all hues, and uh, that's like God. If I look for God in my life, God's there. Uh, I just never looked in the past. Alcohol shut God out of my life. Um, <clears throat> I hope to continue this odyssey, uh, and uh, and by the grace of God and, and the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, those are my plans, and I appreciate your letting me speak here, and I appreciate uh, being here. I'm grateful. Thank you.